You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. I want to take time today to personally thank our sponsors, the JI Learning Center and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Listeners, please do us a solid and support our sponsors. Thank you. Easy go and easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Welcome, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners. You're listening to Elizabeth Stanley. I, along with Karen Castro, bring you Season 3, Two Roads. We drew inspiration for this season from Robert Foss's poem, The Road Not Taken. Given that we're all hunkered down, sheltered in place, it seems likely that most of us are taking stock in who and what we value. Once free, what do we really want to do with our precious time? Throughout season three, you will hear 10 stories of individuals who, on their life's path, realized that maybe, just maybe, the road less traveled was the difference their lives needed. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, thank you for tuning in. I have often wondered how someone with an extraordinarily difficult life journey can find so much to love. In Ed's story, you will learn that despite abandonment, loss, and many other hardships, Ed still chooses joy and laughter over hate and despair. Ed also reminds us, whichever road we decide to take, make sure to travel down that road with kindness and compassion. Ed also reminds us that it's always okay to make someone smile. I want to remind y'all, if you or anyone you know has suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the suicidal hotline. They are ready 24 hours each day to help us. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. As always, please be advised, there may be some graphic language in this episode. Your discretion is advised. And so in this interview, we're going to discuss what I believe is a very unorthodox and very unstable childhood that you had, but it's uniquely Edward Harris. And I think because of that childhood, um, you're the great person that you are today. So I want to get to that. But before that, I want to start on a happy note with you sharing um, just who your kids are and who your grandkids are. So go ahead and share your wonderful children with us. I have three girls and a boy. Um, I have a son who's 28, named Edward Harris Jr. I have a daughter who's 26, Tiffany Harris. I have a 25-year-old daughter, Desiree Harris, and a 22-year-old daughter, Valencia Harris. I have two grandsons. Uh, one is two, Edward Harris III, and the other one is 10. His name is Aiden Raboy. Tell us what your children and your grandchildren mean to you. Um, my daughters and my son, they mean a lot. Um, these are the extensions of who I wanted to be, and somehow 
in in many different ways they're they're exactly who I want to be but now they're their own people my grandsons especially the little one um has changed perspective in my life about just relaxing and enjoying things and doing doing more fun things instead of being so you know straight laced because you know you got to act a certain way but with my grandson I sons I just get to be goofy and silly all right, so you're enjoying their childhood. Could we argue that maybe you're living a little vicariously through them and that you're giving to your, you've ga- you gave to your children and you're giving to your grandchildren what perhaps you missed as a child? Uh, that would be a, a, a pretty accurate statement. I definitely, especially to the, um, the grandsons, I, I lived through them a lot uh, because the youngest one, everything's new to him. So I get to share with him things that I wanted to know when I was a kid. I get to share it with them, with my grandsons. All right. So speaking of that childhood, let's now try and unpack what I believe is less than a normal upbringing. Would you agree with that? I would agree with it. So you grew up in Oakland, California, correct? Yes. What was your childhood like in, in Oakland with your mother and with your two siblings? My childhood started off as normal. My mother... She was really, really smart. Um, introduced us to a lot of different things. Always taught us to look past color and just, just, just see the world for what it is, and to jump in and just enjoy it. So that that part was normal. It it, it changed. Who's the we? Uh, my sister and my brother. My sister um, Joyce and my brother Gerald. Um, but you know, it was just us three um, when I was growing up. Were you the old? eldest? No, I'm the middle. The middle. My sister Joyce is the oldest. Okay, so so things seemed normal to you. You got your mother, you got your brother and your sister. Where is your father? Um to be honest, I don't I don't know. Like he um came in and out at random times. So the, the I I believed he still lived in Oakland, but I don't I don't really have a relationship with him, so I don't know. Okay. All right, so when did things change? Um, probably when I was five or six, things changed. We're uprooted quickly and placed in a foster home in uh, New Orleans with my aunt and uncle. Why was this? Um, my mother had gotten into some legal trouble. You know, we had to, my sister and my, my brother, we had to be sent to New Orleans while that was being taken care of. So your mom went from this very attentive mother, raised in a a very she was raised in a stable home with her parents and and then things went awry what was your mother doing that led to you having to be a in foster care and then be placed with your relatives all the way across the country well we we ended up going into foster care because um sounds like sort of like a movie but um, my mother got into a fight with another lady and in, uh, in the laundromat of uh, where we lived and it got really, really bad. The lady tried to stab my mother. My mother ended up stabbing her. And then we ended up going on the run. <laughs> Literally, my mother, you know, was on the run for a while. And, you know, so that's why we ended up going to stay with my uh, my aunt and uncle in New Orleans. Okay, so your mother, was it at that point she started uh, down a road of destruction with drugs? See, I didn't know early on um, that that's what was going on. Uh, didn't realize till probably when I was eight or nine. Once we came back to California, um, that that what was going on. It was a there was like a revolving door of different people coming in and out of our houses, and then one day it just became the normal just to see that. 
Now that's an interesting story that that I know that others don't. But share it how your life collided with Geraldo Rivera. So we came back to um, from New Orleans, uh, and we stayed in California for maybe another four or five years, and then it was kind of like history repeating itself again. My mother got into some more issues, and one night I remember she just swooped us up and we jumped on a, a Greyhound bus. And we didn't know where we were going. It just seemed like some kind of fun adventure. But then we ended up in Chicago. And that's, we, we ended up living in Chicago. So while we were in Chicago, um, we were living in, on the south side. They started having a whole bunch of rash of uh, fires. Apartments were being set on, on fire. Uh, and I remember it was Christmas, it was Christmas Eve. And my brother and myself, we were walking around just trying to figure out what was going, what we were doing. And we were coming up the back steps. And we saw some guys um, running up and down the hallways, just throwing like we thought was water at the time. And we kind of laughed, like, why are they throwing water on the walls and stuff? And we were in our apartment. Maybe 20 minutes later, you could start hearing glass and screaming, and uh, we ended up being in a fire. Turns out it was just a rash of fires by a certain landlord. He was burning all his buildings. And we ended up having a, a Geraldo Rivera came out to interview my mother. Um, to talk about it. And in that interview, somehow or another, they ended up killing me. I think at the time they said I was 11, but I was actually 10. I was 10, and they said that I ended up dying in a fire, which wasn't true, because obviously I'm here. How did Geraldo Rivera, your mom, manage to get him to pay for your your family relocation? So he wanted to do the interview with us, but my mother was like, no, you know, we, you know, so... Somehow or another, they ended up getting us tickets so we can come back to California. Um, after the interview, we ended up coming back to California. No, we were supposed to come back to California right away, but we didn't. All right, so there were fires, and then it was covered. On, it started to get picked up on, on the news, right? Yes. And that's when Geraldo uh, decided he wanted to do uh, more an investigative series with that, and that's how you met him. Can you tell us about how he ended up um, more connected to your story? Well, he was with 2020. He was just starting out with 2020. And he was doing, um, I guess, the, that was his first investigative reporting he was doing on the fires in Chicago. Uh, and so that's we were in the hospital, and he came in, and he linked in and wanted to talk to us about it. But since we were, myself and my brother were the two who saw what was going on, um, he wanted to talk to us. What what did your mom negotiate out of him? Uh, she wanted to get money from him so we could uh, so we could move and get back to California. And she told him she wasn't going to do it unless he bought us tickets, gave her some money, and you know he did it because he was starting out. So he wanted it, but we didn't, we didn't come back right away though. Of course. All right. So now you're back in California. You're with your mother and your brother, correct? Yes. Your sister stayed behind because that was deemed a better situation for a girl, correct? Yes. Okay. So you're with your mother, but you're really not with your mother, right? Right. So tell us about you raising your brother and yourself, essentially, and at what age did this begin? So when we came back, um, when we came back, my mother started being, she started disappearing, like she'd be gone for a day, then a day would turn into a couple of days, and then started turning into a couple of weeks, and pretty soon it became kind of normal, like if you would come home, she wouldn't be home, it would just be me and my brother, 
And so I would just do the things that she would do. I would cook, make sure we got up, went to school, clean up. And sometimes you would come home, she would be home, but she'd be in her, in her room, um, not really talking. So she could be in there for two or three days. So it just became normal just to uh, make sure me and my brother got up, got food and went to school. That was our normal routine. What was your brother like and what was your relationship with him at that time? My brother was really, really quiet. He was um, very artistical. The guy could draw anything, could make anything. He was just, he was very creative. That was his thing. He was quiet too. He was really, really quiet. Um, but he and I did everything together. We were, I mean, it was just me and him for the longest. Uh, so we did everything. So we were really, really close um, in that regard. So. Um, we really took on that uh, us-against-the-world uh, personality because it really was us-against-the-world at that time. So how often were you the man of the house, and at what age were you at this time, and how young was your brother? Early on at first, um, didn't really really know that we were alone. And, and you know, it's like, because my mother, at the beginning, before we eventually went to New Orleans the first time. She was around, but not, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to explain. She was there, but not there. So it didn't really feel like that big of a transition when it just became, oh, it really, really was us all the time by ourselves. It wasn't, it wasn't like a shock. I was, actually, it used to become like a, we used to kind of laugh. Okay, she's home. How long is she going to be home? What were your ages? First, before we moved, I was six and my brother was four, yeah, because I'm two years older. That the first time we, we ended up going out to New Orleans. And then we, when we came back, my brother was eight and I was 10. Then we ended up in Chicago again and we came back. So it's still all around in the same time frame. I mean, it, there was a block where everything was just all jum, jumbled in together. So I'm from a small town. And... I would hear all these crazy stories about all the violence in Oakland. And you lived right there in the mix of it. How did you keep your, you and your younger brother safe during this time? And you were, you were running the streets. How did you manage to not get pulled into that chaos as well as keep you and a child, a tiny child, safe? I stayed out of a lot of the issues because I played sports. Um, I played football and and stuff like that. But made it, I also made a conscious effort. I would try to. I didn't. I didn't want to end up like like everyone else. I didn't. That's not something I I didn't want. And it's weird because my brother shared the same idea with me, except he, he wasn't vocal about it. But we both thought the same thing. And we that's not where we wanted to be. So we were kind of selective. We we try to stay out of trouble as much as possible. We knew when something was not right. And we, we hardly let anybody kind of push us into it. We just didn't do it. It just wasn't what we wanted to do. Let's dive into this future relationship with your brother. Can you tell us, just kind of lead us into him as an adult, some of, the, um, some of the difficulties that you sensed he was going through, and then when he finally took his own life? So growing up, my brother was, he kept to himself. Um, if he opened up and let you in, it's because he trusted you and he, he liked you. But he kept to himself, but he struggled. Um, he, you know, he was always looking for um, my mother to reassure him that, you know, that he was loved and that, you know, that he, would, he mattered to her. But 
You know, there were a lot of times she just didn't make him feel that way. She was alienated a lot, and she would say things like, oh, Edward's my favorite, and she would just say things like that. And I think it, over time, it just kind of eroded his, uh, his confidence away and his self-esteem. But he dove into art and, and poems and stuff like that, and you could see it through his art and his poems. So as he got older, he, you know, he still was that, that guy, who was a classic guy who was searching for, still for the approval of his mom. So he found that in different uh, women that he dated. And so he finally found one that he was really, really into and seemed like things were going well. But they started having problems, and he just kind of fell into, you know, a, a darker spot. And he just, he just didn't, he never recovered from that. And he, he thought he had found someone that he could get approval from, but, you know, that didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. And it just, it really just, it really just changed how he, how he viewed a lot of things. How old was he? 24. Yeah, he was 24 at the time uh, when he took his own life. He was 24 at the time. And so you're 26, and you have your own spot now in Oakland? Uh, my brother and myself were, are living in my grandfather's house. He, he moved out, and so me and my brother were living there. Okay, and this is in Oakland? Oakland, yeah, on High Street. Walk us through when your brother right in front of you took his own life so it had been uh had been a couple of weeks different signs here and there um about how i was feeling and so it was it was a uh, thanksgiving day uh, my sister and my my nephew were in the living room and no we had went to go ice skating and we had asked my brother if he wanted to go ice skating he said no he didn't want to go he was waiting for the girl at the time that he was dating to, to come by so we went to uh Berkeley, there's a skating ring there, ice skating ring. When we got there, there was a post-it note on the window, and it was like, Edward Harris, uh, you need to call the Oakland Police Department. So we're all like, what the heck? So call the Oakland Police Department, and they explained how someone had saw my brother standing in the window with the gun. They went to go talk to him. They did take a gun from him um, just as a precautionary measure. So we get home, talking to him, and he's just saying how he's depressed and how he's feeling and everything. And he goes down to his room, and, you know, he's just down there. So I'm on the phone um, with Valencia's mom, who I just started dating. And he comes upstairs, and he, he looks at me like he wants to talk. And I'm like, hey, do you want to talk? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, give me a minute. When I get off the phone, I'll talk to you. He's like, fine. He goes downstairs, and then he comes back up maybe a few minutes later. And he's holding something in his hand, and he, he motions for me to put my hand out. So I put my hand out, and he puts some bullets in my hand right at the time if I would have been counting I would have noticed that there was one missing but I, I really wasn't paying attention and then I remember the police took the gun from him so I figured those were just around from the from the weapon and he was just giving them to me so he walks out then he comes back in and it had to be about 30 seconds like the turnaround was quick so maybe he was thinking about it and he comes in and he just says to me hey do you want to know what I've been doing downstairs and I'm like huh what and he goes, do you want to know what I've been doing downstairs? And I'm like, okay, what? And he just pulls it, puts the gun up to his head and pulls the trigger and takes his life in, in the room. And that was on uh, Thanksgiving. You've obviously had a lot of time to process this, and so much time has passed. But at that moment, what did it feel like? It's weird because you... Uh, you see in the movies and people get shot in the head and there's blood everywhere, this, that, but it didn't even happen like that. Um, when he shot himself, he fell backwards 
he had a hood on, was over his head, and I didn't see any blood, so I was thinking that I, I kind of instantly I got mad, like, hey, don't be shooting guns in the house. What's wrong with you? Da, da, da. And I was like, are you okay? And he just kept responding, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and he just kept doing that. And when I lifted up the hood, I can, t- I can tell it wasn't, it was, you know, it wasn't okay. So it's, it's definitely not like the movies, but it's a, your time just stops. Everything around you just stops. It just, it really does just stop. And then you're just asking yourself over and over and over again, like, what just happened? Did that just happen? It took me a long time to realize that it actually did happen. I mean, and when I say a long time, even from the fact when the police came and then they take us to the hospital and then the, the questioning by the police, you know, it just didn't even seem real. So you're at the hospital with your brother. You go through the whole grieving process. You're by yourself, correct? Yes. And you're dealing with the the whole burial of your brother and uh, all, all everything, not just the hospital, the police stuff. And, and then at what point were you able just to, just to be Ed Harris, the grieving brother? Um, to tell you the truth, up until, I don't know, I, I, I put it away for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until I went to actually talk to a counselor about something totally different then I realized that I had been holding on to it for that long. So to be honest, it took <laughs> till I was like 48, 48 to, to realize that, that I was holding on to it and that it was affecting a lot of things that was going on in my life. Your brother passes, you go through the, the immediate morning of him and, and, and dealing with all the administrative stuff. Where did you go after that? For, I don't know. For two years after he died, it was weird. Like, I don't really remember that whole two years, like, what happened after that. The, it's weird. Like, the one only memory that I had, I remember four days after he died, we were playing Oakland High, and I was the football coach at Fremont High. And I remember I wasn't going to go to the game. I, was, I just didn't feel like I wanted to do the game. And then I remember my brother, <laughs> we got into an argument maybe a week before because I said I wanted to have the football team over for like, you know, like pasta or something like that. And he was like, I don't even like football. Like I'm gonna have all these kids in the house and da 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 And then we kind of got an argument, but I remember him coming to the football field, sitting at the field during practice. And then afterwards, watching me talk to the kids and after he goes you look like you're happy when you do that he goes i need to be happy like that so let's go ahead and let the kids come i don't know it's just weird that he uh he had he did that so i guess in his way it was just like you know trying to find some happiness too like i have some happiness so it took a while for me to to realize that uh that he had actually that he was actually gone it was just it's just weird i don't know even to this day sometimes i can't even explain it at that age, weren't you in the military? I was still um, in the reserves, yeah. I was in the active reserve still. But I was, at the time, I was um, coaching football. I was going through the process of San Francisco Police Department, um, getting on the San Francisco Police Department. So they run you around a lot, so I had that going on. But other than that, I don't really remember after he 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 died what what i did that whole two years because it really was two years before one day i just kind of i don't know just kind of just started going back to to normal i could eat spaghetti again and anything that was red or whatever i didn't smoke gunpowder i could kind of sleep a little bit so 
it started returning back to normal after that. A little bit. When did you end up full-time in the military? And was that an escape? I always wanted to be uh, in the military. In fact, my brother and I, we used to cut out the um, the ads in the uh, the Jet magazine, and we kept sending them in, so much so that the Marines showed up at our house. We were like, I was, my brother was six. No, I was six. My brother was like four or something like that. But we just kept, we just kept sending them, two little kids sending them, and finally these two big Marines showed up at our house to come get us. Um, so I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I... I ended up getting out of Oakland to go play football, but that didn't work out. And I ended up getting kicked out of school. And I just, I found them, I went to the Marine Corps. And I was like, I'm going to go to the Marines. And they couldn't take me. So the Navy guy was kind of hiding in the cuts. And he was like, hey, come here. And I was talking to him. And I ended up uh, joining the Navy, which is kind of where I probably should have been anyway, because my sister and my grandfather and you know, we're all a Navy family anyway. So I don't, it wasn't so much as an escape. But I just didn't want to come back and tell my grandfather that I got kicked out of school. So I needed some structure. So it, I joined the Navy. worked out fine. How many years did you serve? Total, <laughs> 31. 31, because I did, at one point I thought I was out of the reserves, but I was still in the reserves, and then I got activated and came back. And so total, 31 total. In what war did you go and fight? I was in the Gulf War, the first one we had, um, and then I went to Iraq uh, twice. All right, you have the PTSD of unstable childhood. You have the PTSD of watching your brother take his own life right in front of your very eyes. And you have the PTSD of war because you actually went to war. Yes. And then, as if that's not enough, tell us about your your um, ex-wife. So during my time in the military, um, I was married. Um, and one day I came home from patrol, um, and I found my wife on the floor in the kitchen. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? She was like, I don't know. She had passed out. She didn't realize she passed out. Um, we had a series of checks, and the Navy said, oh, she just has a nasal problem. Here's some, some nasal spray. <laughs> so that happened, like, two more times. Um, but then we started noticing that it looked like her eyes were being pushed apart. So finally, we were able to go bite the bullet. We just went to Stanford, and then Stanford uh, diagnosed her with cancer. She had a rare cancer that was supposed to be in your stomach, but somehow or another manifested in her, in, um, in her nasal passage. So that started a long 13, 14-year battle with cancer, um, multiple surgeries and multiple disfigurement. I mean, you name it, it happened. Um, and, you know, eventually she succumbed to that after a, a long 14-year battle. So more trauma in your life. But I know that trauma, that loss, was more profound as you were helping your children grieve the loss of, your, of their mother. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, um, my kids were lucky. Are lucky. They had the benefit of having myself plus their mom. So that's that's what they knew. Um, and now we got, you know, especially my daughter, someone who um, who's she's just lost. And so now they have to. It's just me, just dad, um, jumping in and trying to deal with that. And that that in itself was a little little difficult. 
because now it forces me to have to deal with my own issues about, you know, missing people and, you know, and, and losing someone. So uh, it, it became a, it, be, it wasn't, I mean, not that it was difficult. It wasn't difficult, like, oh, this is hard, but it was difficult in trying to understand how they were feeling and trying to get them to um, understand that, yeah, it's hard now and it hurts now, but it gets better as it goes. But it didn't get better for your son, and that's led him to the path that he's currently on. And do you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Yeah, you know, I've always warned my kids um, that it's possible that we have addictive behavior. There's a good chance that any any path down, you know, doing drugs, it's probably not really going to end well. And I've always stressed to them that, you know, drugs have torn our family apart since I was a kid. And I've always stressed to them to, to stay away, to stay away, to say no whenever they possibly could, you know, to ask me if there's something they need to know. Um, so my son, he did well with that up until probably he went to college. Um, and then he went to college, uh, things changed, and he, he moved out, he was hiding things, and then later I find out that he, you know, he's, he was uh, doing heroin. Um, doing heroin, and, and that's the road he's on now. And so... That's how his son, his son has come to live with me, because you know he's not able to take care of them, you know, and he's just out there on the street. Have tried a lot of things, you know. The point about, you know, almost bank bankrupt myself trying to put him in in rehabs that he won't stay in, um, you know, and try the tough love like, you know, I'm not going to help you. I mean, we've tried every avenue possible. Um, now we're just to the point now we're waiting he, for either him to figure out this is. This is not what he wants to do, or I, I don't know. Um, so the very thing that I fought to stay out of, stay away from, yeah, he, he ended up falling into. Prior to his drug use, can you give us a little sense of how out of the blue this was for you? Yeah, my son was a, a highly recruited um, defensive end, inside linebacker, um, well-liked um, you know, we lived in Modesto, so it's kind of small. So he truly was the hometown hero. Everyone loved him. You know, the younger kids looked up to him. I mean, girls were chasing after him. He had a really, really bright future ahead of him. Um, and somewhere along the line, he went a different route. As everybody can see, you have not had the easiest path. You, you it seems like one landmine after another and so many people would give in to hate or despair in regards to that. But given all that trauma, all that drama, you've chosen to be happy. How do you go through how do you go through life loving people freely and trying to make people laugh and not giving in to hate and despair? Well, like I said earlier on, my mother did, you know, for all, all of her faults, the things that she did wrong, she did some some good things that still to this day that I still follow. Um, and, yeah, I can I can duck my head and I can complain all I want, but that's that's really not going to change. Sometimes the, when I'm having the worst times at all, um, it's probably why I ended up coaching, because when I'm having the worst time, I'm around other people and I feed off their energy and, I, you know, I just, I just, my, my drive to do better or to try to help other people be better helps me at the same time. Um, because I remember when I was a kid, there was a coach who I would walk home every day. I mean, the shoes that I played football in were the shoes that I wore. 
um, I would walk home every day after practice. One day he asked me, he just, he asked me, he says, you're always happy. He goes, but the kids are messing with you all the time. You're always happy. And he goes, why? And I just said, I can't change a lot of things, but I can always, I can always control how I feel about things. And if I want to stay down, I can stay down, but no one's going to, who's going to help you? No one's really going to help you. You got to do things for yourself. And you just got to see the good in things. And I'm always trying to find the good in something. You mentioned coaching. Are you still currently coaching? At the moment, I'm not coaching. Given the situation was going on, no one's really coaching at this moment. But um, I am. I have some opportunities um, coming up, so I will go back to coaching. Coaching, I, I do miss it because it is me. Um, it is my outlet. You know, the the world could be falling down, but if I go into the gym or I'm on the football field, it's a whole different world. You have a chance to to shape and mold different people. Um, you know, you might actually be helping yourself. Um, some one of those kids might be you. You might see that, then you can help that kid. And it is a way to give back. I feel that they, even though my childhood was rough and crazy, there were so many people along the way that maybe not money-wise or stuff like that, but they always said positive things and pushed me in the right direction. And, you know, as a kid, you don't always want to hear what an adult has to say, but um, a lot of those things that those adults said to me resonated, and they stuck. Um, and so if I could do the same thing, I definitely want to do the same thing. Edward Harris, what life lesson or lessons have you learned that you know would help other people because it's helped you and resonated with you throughout your life? One of the biggest things uh, that I learned, and I still to this day because I have this weird life where things are going smooth and there will be a pothole. It's coming. Oh, it's going to be a pothole. And I say this all the time, I don't worry about things I can't change. I only worry about the things I can change. And I just work on doing those things and everything else um, will fall into line. And if you have to believe in yourself, and there's gonna be times where people are not gonna, not gonna see that what kind of person you are, you just gotta keep pushing through. Um, and don't be afraid, like I'm not afraid. I, I'll talk to anybody. I've met some really good, and that's how I met you. I met some some of the best people in my life. I've got some of the best jobs in my life just because I'm willing to talk to people and put myself out there. Don't be scared to put yourself out there. If you could change one decision you made, what would it be? I think we, we've, I've asked, if people ask me this question, I'm scared to say that there's anything I would change because I've, Everything I've been through now has made me who I am. And even through all the bad and the craziness, I feel if I move one thing, will I even be the same person? And, you know, and people always go, if I could go back, I would do this, that, and the other. But one little change could change a lot. Will I have my kids? I mean, will I, will I be the person that I am? I mean, I don't know if there's anything. I, yeah, we all want to take away the badness. I love to take away all the bad things, but bad things shape us too. So I don't know if there's anything I really would like to change. I think about that too. You move one piece and then what follows? Every All of it. Something, it, it's going to have profound changes on everything thereafter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about that. What do you hope people say about you? You know, like I tell my, uh, my grandson, Aiden, there's not a lot of things in this world that we can control, but you would love for people to remember you as the being a good stand-up person, somebody that was genuinely a good person. 
not a manufactured person, not a person who did things just because they wanted to get from other people. But you just want people, I would love if people say, hey, I know Ed, yeah, he was a good guy, man. That guy always made me laugh. He had good things to say. That's how I want people to, to think about me. God, he was a really good guy, man. You, you would have liked him if you met him. I would definitely say that people who really know you could easily say, that guy should have been down, that guy should have gone down the wrong path. It was all laid out for him. All the whole deck was stacked against him, but he chose to be happy. And as difficult as that has been to stay on that path, you have always chosen to do the right thing as much as possible, do no harm, and do the best you can for others. So if that's been your goal in life, I assure you, you have met that goal because people can count on you and people know that, hey, I'm having a bad day, but if I turn to Ed, he's going to be there for me and do whatever he can to make it a little better. So on behalf of all those people that I know um, and all the people I don't, um, thank you for choosing, choosing happiness and showing us how to do that. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank all our guests whose open and honest responses shaped another great season. As always, we need to thank our listeners whose support means so much to us. Additionally, we must thank our great contributors for their music, Hunter Lewis, Robert Stanley, Danny Burns, and Alejandro of Drobeats. We also need to thank Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bars, and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website, podsavetherestofus.com, as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus, and on the Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.